You know, the guy that preached last week, uh, his sermon was close to 40 minutes long. So hopefully that won't happen this week. Whew. Chris was late for lunch. All right, um, we are going to be in Colossians. We're actually going to finish Colossians today, so if you will turn to Colossians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 2 through 6. As Paul gives some closing instructions to this small church of new believers in Colossae. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Pray that I will make it known, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come again to your word, as we've heard it read, God, we pray that you would bless, that you, by your spirit, would work in our hearts. Help us to know what it looks like to have lives transformed by grace. We pray that the, that the preaching would be clear. That you would bless it, that you would bless our hearing of it, that, that we would be forever changed by the word that works in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, while we are certainly more than the sum of our experiences, we are, in a manner of speaking, defined by our experiences. Our life, who we are, is defined by the things that we go through, by the joys, by the sorrows, by the awful things, by the amazing things. Right? These families, hundreds of families in Connecticut and across the country, maybe around the world, will be forever shaped, forever shaped, by a massacre. But for the Christian, there is an overriding event that defines who we are and defines all the other experiences that we go through. For the Christian, there is an event, rather there is a person who towers over our entire lives, who towers over everything else, And he takes all of those joys and all of those sorrows and he gives them meaning and purpose and redemption. And that person, of course, is Jesus. And his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, his rule, his spirit's presence in our heart, that event, that person defines everything else. And that's what we've been talking about the past few weeks in Colossians. Is, right? Paul has been elevating Jesus above all the other gods that the Colossians were prone to worship. He says, Jesus is all you need, and once you have him, once he has brought you into the kingdom of light, then your life is transformed and renewed in him. 
Everything you do, from how you fight your sin, to how you love your wife, to how you deal with those who are outside the church, is transformed by Jesus. And so that's, that's how we're going to finish the letter. We're going to tra- finish by saying that lives transformed by grace face outwards. Not inwards, not huddled up for protection, but lives transformed by grace face outwards. Right? They, they, they're, they're, we're actually two-faced people. We have a vertical face and we have a horizontal face. When our, when our lives are transformed by grace, we are enabled to look upward to God in prayer. That's the vertical dimension of the Christian life. And then when we are transformed by grace, we are enabled to look outward, to walk outward, to walk wisely. Right? That's the horizontal face. That's what Paul is talking to the Colossians about. That's what he's, he's talking to us about. Let's look at the, the vertical face, right? Literally, Paul says, in prayer, persevere. And if, and if you were to read all of Paul's letters, you would find prayer is, is one of the things that, right, he, he begins every letter with prayer, talking about how he's praying for the church that he's writing to, most of his letters, And then he usually finishes those letters, commending them, asking them to pray for him and the ministry of the gospel. Right? Paul's Paul's prayers, he says he prays night and day. This is the apostle who uses phrases like, be constant in prayer, Romans 12, 12. Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. For Paul, prayer was so incredibly important. And it's interesting that he doesn't, he doesn't simply say, here are the hours in the day when you should pray. So that's not bad. For Paul, it is a, it is a constant communication, a day-long conversation. And it's interesting that what Paul commends so readily to the, church, to the churches he worked with is something that we struggle with so much. Right? Paul says... Be devoted to or be busy in prayer. Think about that. Think about that phrase. Be busy in prayer. Be busily engaged in prayer. Imagine what that would look like. And think think in terms of good busy, not bad busy. We'll talk about bad busy in just a second. Right? Wrap your mind around that. What does it look like to be busy? To be devoted to something. Right, if you if you haven't if you haven't been to Healthy's Grill, formerly known as Seven Place, they have the best burgers in town. Uh, we should go sometime. But the owner is also the one chef, and we were we were there on Friday night, and that cat was busy. Right, he was as soon as an order would come off the grill, he'd spray the oil on, he'd scrape it, and he'd go at it again. Right, and I. I mean, he, he, looked, he looked exhausting to me. Um, I wish I was that devoted to just about anything. But I asked him, I said, surely, you know, this has got to be exhausting for you. I said, how, how long have you been at this? He said, probably about 7 or 8 this morning. And this was close to 8 o'clock at night. And they weren't closed yet, so he probably still had to at least 11 o'clock to go. And then he followed it with these words, but I love it. Now, that alone is a foreign, a foreign concept to me, right? But he is 
busy. He is devoted to his business. He, he loves what he does, and so he is engaged in it. And I think that begins to give us a glimpse by how Paul is talking about prayer. Be busy in prayer. Be devoted to prayer. The reason I think, the reason I think we struggle so much with prayer is that we don't, we, have, we probably have a bad view of it. We don't view it the way that man views his work. We typically view it as simply a ritual, right? Maybe a laundry list to go through. So while I am so good at being busy at so many things, and now I'm talking about bad busy, frenetic busy, going from this to this to this to this, never seeming to accomplish much, I'm very bad at being busy in prayer, Right, but how we view prayer will affect how we do prayer. I want to read you a quote from this book, A Praying Life. Our ladies have studied this before, and it's from the foreword of the book, written by a, a man named uh, David Pallinson, a counselor and a pastor. As I read this, see if this, see if this resonates with you. He says, it's, it's hard to pray. It's hard enough to ask a trusted friend for something. It's hard enough to make an honest request of a friend that we trust for something we truly need. But when the request gets labeled prayer and the friend is named God, things often get very tangled up. You've heard the contorted syntax, formulaic phrases, meaningless repetition, vague non-requests, pious tones of voice, and air of confusion. If you talk to your friends and family that way, they'd think you'd lost your mind. But you've probably talked that way to God. Right? You've known people who treat prayer like a rabbit's foot for warding off bad luck and bringing goodies. You've known people who feel guilty because their quantity of prayer fails to meet some presumed standard. Maybe you are one of those people. I'm one of those people. Prayer is difficult because it comes front-loaded with so much other baggage. We don't quite know what to do with it, and so we struggle when we come to prayer. And I think that if we redefine prayer and we view prayer the way Paul seemed to, the way Jesus seemed to, if we view it as a conversation, or better yet, communion with God, I think that would change how we pray. I think we would be a little more honest in prayer, maybe. Right? I prize production and efficiency. When I sit down in my office, and as a pastor I know that I'm supposed to pray, prayer just does not feel very productive or efficient. Right? So I, I close my eyes and I go, okay, I know this is important. But it's really important that I go get these things done because if I don't do those things, it's not going to happen. God's not going to act. So, amen and let's go. Right? Manage to scratch off about 10 minutes worth of a laundry list and then I've got to get to work. I don't pray or actually I struggle in prayer because I think I just need to go do something. And what Paul says is you are doing something. You are communicating with the maker of heaven and earth 
and asking him to move and act on your behalf, especially in things you cannot do. So Paul says, pray, persevere in prayer. What does that prayer look like? He says, be watchful in it with thanksgiving. We are people who have been awoken, woken up from our slumber. So we can be watchful, we can be alert, we can wait for the second coming of Jesus. And as we wait, we pray with thanksgiving, thanking God for what he has done. Right? Paul's letter to the Colossians and, and lots of Paul's letters are, are just punctuated with thanksgiving all over the place. It's a key characteristic of the Christian life. Why? Because we've been brought from death to life. We've been given an inheritance we couldn't earn. We are thankful people because we belong to a God of mercy through no effort of our own. And the more we grasp His mercies, the more we grasp His Lordship, the more our lives will show gratitude, the more thankful we will be. So Paul says, persevere in prayer, be watchful in it with thanksgiving. But notice also this, right, that prayer is for spiritual purposes. Now, it's not wrong. In fact, it's commanded, it's good in Scripture to pray for physical things. It's good to pray that people would be healed. It's good to pray for the things that, uh, that afflict us. It's good to pray in suffering. But notice what Paul asked prayer for, and I wonder if when we make our prayer list, if this is what we think of. Paul says, would you, while you pray... Would you pray also for us that a door would be opened for the Word, that God would open a door? Paul, Paul's driving emphasis in prayer is spiritual. And that, I think, is sharpened by the fact that he's in prison. This guy is in prison for preaching the gospel, and he is asking for more opportunities to preach the gospel. That's a one-track mind. Okay? Paul... Is praying and is asking for prayer for spiritual purposes. Do we do we pray that way? I'm so I'm so encouraged to be a part of a church and to be part of a team of elders for whom the first thing on the prayer list is revival. We also pray for the for the needs of the congregation and for our own needs. But there is a recognition that our deepest and greatest need is for the Spirit to move, for the gospel to go forth. And so we pray. We pray because those are things we cannot do. Paul was hindered at several points, if you read the book of Acts. He was hindered. Some places he was not allowed to go to preach the gospel. But that did not stop him from praying for more opportunities, for open doors. And so prayer is characterized by spiritual purposes. But let's let, let's let those things shape our prayer life. Right? That prayer is a conversation. It's a conversation with our Father. It's not a business meeting. It doesn't necessarily have to follow an agenda, though some forms are often helpful. Right? You don't walk in. Um, maybe you do follow an agenda at supper time when you talk with your family. I don't know. But right, usually... You don't follow an, follow an agenda after the plates are cleared off. Now, this doesn't happen at our house. Once, once dinner's done, the kids want to get down and run away. But, you know, think about it Christmas time when your family gathers around the table and after the meal is cleared, you may sit around and talk a while. 
I think that's a more accurate picture of our attitude going before God in prayer than the business meeting or the agenda or the laundry list. Those things are there. We can petition God for all of the things on our list, but it's a, it's a, it's a conversation. It's communion. And in that conversation, we can ask for spiritual things like opportunities to share the good news of Jesus. As we pray, Paul, Paul says we must also walk, literally, and this is the horizontal face. If prayer is vertical, the walk is the horizontal. Paul says literally, in wisdom, walk. All right? we, don't, we don't have time for a full study on what it means, uh, what biblical wisdom is, but as the, as the Psalms and the Proverbs say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. True wisdom and knowledge begin with knowing God, and the more we know God, the more we will grow in wisdom. Folly, foolishness, is a result of ignoring God. But when we pay attention, when we listen and we follow, we grow in wisdom. And it's in that kind of wisdom that Paul says we need to walk towards outsiders, making the most of the time, making the best use of the time. When you hear that, I want you to know that for the New Testament writers... There was an urgency in what they did. They assumed that at any second, Jesus might come back. And towards the end, especially in Peter's letters, you see that the church is beginning to to struggle with that, the fact that Jesus has not yet returned. But for all the New Testament writers, the assumption was Jesus could come back at any minute to make the best use of the time. It's been almost 2,000 years. And so our urgency has waned a little bit. But Paul says, make, Paul reminds us that we may only have minutes, we may only have days, we may have months, we may have longer. But however long we have, we must make the best use of it. We must walk wisely to make the best use of it. Right? Um, this is, right, when you think about this, think of a, think of a diligent couponer. Right? Who cli- I know one, who clips as many coupons as they can, like looks for all the right deals so we can combine coupons with, with buy one, get one offers, and they actually pay me money to, to get the butter, okay? Or think of, think of a diligent bargain hunter, right, who wants to make the most of every trip down every aisle. That's what Paul's saying. Make the most of the time. Make the most of the opportunities that you have. Because Jesus could return at any moment. And as you have those opportunities, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. That doesn't mean our speech is, is wimpy. That doesn't mean we, we don't speak up when things are bad. That doesn't mean we approve of sin. Right? That doesn't, that's not what it means to speak graciously. Think about... Think about the supreme act of grace, right? Where truth and mercy meet at the cross. Let that characterize our conversation, right? At at the cross, truth and mercy meet in the person of Jesus. Sin is punished and sin is forgiven. And that can characterize our speech. We can be bold and embracing. We can be confrontational and comforting. And our speech is to be seasoned with salt, flavorful. It means when we talk about Jesus, we don't, we don't need to be boring. 
we don't have boring news. We have good news. And so we need to let our speech be seasoned with salt so that we know how to answer each person. It's interesting. Paul assumed that these people were going to get questions. This, group, this little group of people, because they had come to know Jesus, their lives were being transformed, people were going to be asking them, hey, what's, what's going on? What do you mean you're not going down to the temple to worship? How come, how come we haven't talked in a while? Or better yet, how come you don't participate in these feasts with us anymore? Or whatever it was. Paul says, as your speech is gracious and seasoned with salt, you will know how to answer those questions. And notice, too, that each person deserves their own answer. That we don't have to feel constrained to, to cookie-cutter presentations. But that for every request, every question we get, there is an answer for that situation, for that person. Now, that also means we need to know the basics. We need to know the gospel so that we can share it. But then, once we know the, the, the core foundational truths, we don't have to be afraid of sharing that with people. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 probably summarizes these verses very well. He says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Right? The, the gist of... These verses, the essence of the Christian's horizontal face is this. We walk wisely not to offend, but to win. It's not much good to win an argument, but lose the person. We walk as those who want to win people, not simply arguments. Paul says elders aren't to be quarrelsome. And they were the ones who were to, they're the ones who lead the church. So that's probably a good characteristic for the church to have. We can know the truth and we can speak the truth, but not to offend, to win. That's the horizontal face. October 30th, 2011 is when I started preaching this letter. Now, I haven't preached every Sunday on this letter since then, okay? Um, so that's why it's been such a long time. But this is how that first sermon ended. Christ is a full, complete, and sufficient Savior. You don't need Jesus plus visions. You don't need Jesus plus tongues. You don't need Jesus plus Hail Marys or Jesus plus severe self-discipline. If you needed any of those things, then Jesus would be an insufficient Savior. But Colossians says that Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior. And so here's how I'll finish this sermon. Because Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior, we can live without fear. We can live without fear in prayer. We can go before God because of what Jesus has done, and we can know that He is our Father, and we can be honest. And we can walk before a world that doesn't understand us without fear. We can walk wisely and be gracious without fear knowing that God is at work in the world bringing sinners to Himself. So we can pray for opportunities and we can, sh we can share when we have those opportunities without fear because Jesus is Lord and we're not. So what about you? Have you trusted 
in an all-sufficient Savior? Or are you trusting in your good works? Are you trusting in your religious obedience? Are you trusting in something else? Have you been transformed by grace? Or are you curious what that's like? Jesus says, come. He says, lay down your sin. Lay down your idols. Lay down those people and those experiences that you think will define you for the rest of your life. And come. Come to me, and you will find rest for your souls. That's an invitation. Come to Christ, the King, the Savior. Let's pray. Our God and our King, we thank you that you have transformed us by your grace, that we are a people called by your name and no other. Lord Jesus, that the sacrifice, your sacrifice of your blood has brought us from death into life, from darkness into light. And that now we live without fear. We can talk to you as Father. And we can walk wisely with those who maybe don't belong to us yet. Lord, would you give us, Holy Spirit, would you enable us, empower us to do those things in all of those situations where you have placed us? And Father, would you call in those who don't yet know you? Redeem the lost. Bring in the harvest. Even as we walk through it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.